Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Well, it is never boring here. We had a quarterback controversy last week with the Patriots. And now this week, we have this Ime Adoka situation because it appears that Ime Adoka is about to become the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. We'll get into that in just a second here because I just want to let you know we chatted with Antoine Walker, employee number eight. You'll hear that in just a little bit. But Antoine was on with us right when the news broke that Nash was fired. But we didn't know that Ime Adoka was going to be the front runner for the job. So we did ask Antoine about Nash and Kyrie Irving and some of the good old days with the Celtics and Pierce. But we didn't get to ask about Ime Adoka. So just a heads up when you listen to that. But let's start, of course, with that Ime situation. So Woj reports that Steve Nash is out in Brooklyn. He tweets out right after that that all of a sudden Ime Adoka has become the candidate to land the job. Now, he mentions a couple other names, the Quinn Snyders of the world, but essentially that right away the Nets have been zeroed in on Ime Adoka. So Woj reported that they were vetting the suspension that was, of course, levied down by the Celtics. So just hear me out on this for a second. So they have been vetting Ime Adoka when Steve Nash was coaching the team. So essentially they've been planning to do this for a while. They've been just waiting for the right time to fire Steve Nash. And this sort of symbolizes and highlights what a dysfunctional organization the Nets really are. What an absolute dumpster fire that is. And remember, there's still a ton to the Ime story, right? Remember, the independent law firm, and this came out in Woj's story right when some of the news broke, a couple of days after the news broke, I should say. But the independent law firm found that he used crude language in his dialogue with female subordinates or a female subordinate prior to the start of an inappropriate workplace relationship with the woman. Woj went on to say in that story that the power dynamic associated with the superior's improper relationship with a staff member was the primary finding in policy violations cited in the law firm's report. So that's 
really all the details we got from a Celtics perspective because of legal reasons and all that. Now, remember, Wick came out and he confirmed at the news conference that it was multiple violations. Brad Stevens was crying at the press conference. So there was a lot of stuff there in terms of stuff and information that we still don't know about Ime Adoka. Now, remember, the Celtics players, they don't know anything either. At Media Day, you had Marcus Smart say, quote, we've been in the wind just like everybody else. Jason Tatum, there wasn't any more information we found out besides the things that you guys heard. So there are so many ripple effects to this story right now, and the Celtics players don't know much. There's only a certain group of people within the organization that know for legal reasons why this information isn't out there to the public for everybody to make a determination one way or another if Ime Adoka should be the head coach of the Nets. But just going back to the Nets portion of this equation, you had an NBA team that clearly was on the ascent that went to the NBA Finals last year, and they had this stuff going on in their building that they didn't know about, and they decided that their findings, the independent law firm's findings, I should say, it was strong enough to say, we don't want this guy to ever coach our basketball team again. We never want Ime Adoka to coach our team again, to the point where he had been suspended for the entire season, but it was essentially a firing. So they didn't want to fire Ime. The Celtics didn't want to do this. Ime Adoka is a really good basketball coach. And think about all the things he did for this team last year. He got them to become the best defensive team in the NBA. He got Jason Tatum to play at the highest level he's ever played at. And I understand he had a bad finals, but the guy was a first team all NBA selection last year. And he got Marcus Smart to play the point guard role after years of trying to figure out who's the best point guard for the Celtics. We went through so many of them watching this team play and they landed at, oh yeah, he's been here the whole time in Marcus Smart. So Ime Adoka as a coach did so many good things from this organization that what the Celtics must have found from their opinion has to be so bad that this guy should never coach the team again. They didn't want to make this decision, but based on the findings of the independent law firm, they came to the conclusion, we cannot have this guy coach our basketball team again. And the Nets, just a couple of months after this information comes out there, they're hiring the guy. Obviously, now it's not done yet, but this is the leading candidate to get the job. It's not like he's going to serve a suspension for the Nets. He's going to go there immediately and coach after it was deemed by another organization that Ime Adoka should not be coaching in the NBA. So you have essentially, as we alluded to, the most dysfunctional organization in the NBA, the Brooklyn Nets. And that's saying a lot because the Lakers are in the NBA. You have right now a guard that you traded for. I don't know what position Ben Simmons is. I mean, I really don't. But anyway, he won't shoot. He's been horrible. You have Kyrie Irving in the middle of another scandal where he tweeted a link to a movie that endorses anti-Semitic messaging, and he's going back and forth with people in the media about this. This is after the owner had released a statement. The Brooklyn Nets strongly condemn and have no tolerance for the promotion of any form of hate speech. You had fans at the game on Monday night wearing fight anti-Semitism t-shirts. This situation is going on with your point guard right now. You're in the middle of all this. And you're about to hire a guy that has more baggage than any other coach in the NBA right now that was just in the middle of an absolute scandal. This is where the Nets are at as an organization. Ime Adoka is a great coach, but is he really worth all this for this Nets team? That's going nowhere. They're not winning anything. Durant's a great player. I get all that. Does anybody think the Nets are going to win anything significant this year with the dysfunction? Who knows how much longer Kyrie's even on the team? So you're now going to have to handle this, by the way, in a press conference setting as well. 
because we saw the Celtics have their press conference about Ime. Now the Nets are going to have to have theirs and answer all those questions and the questions surrounding Ime Yudoka, right? Where you obviously had, we don't know all the details, and I'll continue to say that, right? We don't have all the details, but we know there was an issue in terms of the workplace dynamic of Ime and a coworker that was a subordinate. And now you're bringing in that guy to your team to coach after another team had said, no, we don't want him here anymore. You're bringing that guy into your organization. That's a lot for a Nets team that doesn't seem to handle anything really well. Now, what I think would have happened, right? I mean, and this is just me guessing on this in terms of why they're hiring Ime. Kevin Durant, we all know, is pulling the organization. He knows Ime. He was in Brooklyn with Kevin Durant. Durant played for him on the Olympic team as well. So this could be, again, Joe Sy and the ownership group of the Nets caving to Kevin Durant. They want to tire him too, probably, right? I mean, they probably think he's a good coach. They had him in the building. But you just wonder about the credibility of the vetting process, right? Because you think about it, if they're a star player, KD, who demanded a trade, who wanted the coach fire already in Steve Nash, if he's making all these demands, like how meticulous were you with your vetting process, right? And we don't know the facts on this. I'm just pointing out, like these are legitimate questions, right? When you have credibility issues as it is with your organization, and now you're hiring a coach that was under scandal the past couple of months, and you're bringing him in, and you wonder how much of this has to do with Kevin Durant. Now, I know Sean Marks, of course, the general manager there, has a relationship with Ime Adoka going back to their days with the Spurs, but it just feels like, to me, this is just a really, really risky decision by the Brooklyn Nets. And what they've essentially done, look, Ime Adoka's a great coach, I'll continue to say that, but you've now brought more distraction into your organization you're dealing with the Kyrie thing, and now immediately you're going to be welcoming another distraction into your organization. Like, this is really unbelievable stuff and unbelievable dysfunction with this Nets organization. All right, so let's get to it from a Celtic side, right? Because it is interesting on their side of things too, right? So first of all with them, it is a distraction, at least in some sense, right? For the Celtics, and it may be a small one, it may be non-existent in a week or so, and the Nets may completely blow up and they may suck like they've been sucking all season and it's not going to be important to us whatsoever. But now the players have to talk about this again, right? The players are going to be asked questions when Ime Adoka is now coaching for the Brooklyn Nets, so they have to answer those questions. I'm not saying it's a daunting or difficult task, but I have to imagine the Jason Tatums, the Marcus Smarts, the Jalen Browns, the Derek Whites, all these guys, the Al Horfords of the world, they thought they were done talking about Ime Adoka, at least for the time being. I can't imagine that anybody in that locker room thought that Ime Adoka would be the head coach of not only a team in the NBA this year, but a team in their division, a team that they just beat in the postseason a year ago. So there is at least that element to it. The other thing is this. I do wonder, is Ime going to try to make the Celtics look like the bad guys here? I can't imagine that's the case, right? Because he's lucky that he's getting a job in the NBA right now. So I don't think that's going to be the case, but I am interested to see when Ime, and it appears, and like we said, nothing's official yet, but all signs are pointing to Ime Adoka becoming the next head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I am really interested to see what Ime can say and can't say in his press conference, so to speak. Another thing is, Adam Himmelsback from the Globe tweeted on Tuesday, unlikely to seek compensation, the Celtics, from the Nets. So they're not looking for a draft pick, a player, anything for Ime. And Doc Rivers, you got a first round draft pick for him. So I don't know what the stance is on this. Do they not want to ask for something for a disgraced coach in their eyes and don't want to benefit off him? 
like, is that what it is? Is this a aesthetics thing? Is this a optics thing where they don't want to look bad for this situation where they're getting rid of a guy that they knew they didn't want to coach because of how he treated certain people in the organization, or at least a person in the organization, that it would look bad for them if they benefited from Ime Adoka. And I could understand it when it comes from that perspective. I could totally understand why they wouldn't want to get anything for Ime when it comes to that. And the other portion of the equation is we will eventually find out about that, right? Because eventually Brad Stevens is going to talk and he's going to be asked about it and we'll see if he answers or not. But I have to imagine that has something to do with it. And the other thing is this. Well, if you look at it from the net side of things, as bad of an organization as they've been and as we have laid out with the Nets, you do wonder too if, okay, yeah, they really, really want Ime Adoka, but if it was going to cost them something to get Ime Adoka, would they have been able to convince the best player on the team, Kevin Durant, that, hey, Quinn Snyder was the right guy for the job or somebody else is the right guy for the job, that the Nets know that Ime Adoka is never coaching for the Celtics again. So the Celtics are willing to get rid of him and they're probably okay with giving up nothing to get rid of Ime Adoka. That may be part of the calculus too from a Nets perspective where they say, well, we're just not going to give anything up if you won't give us Ime Adoka. And you have to imagine the Celtics kind of knew what was coming when it comes to that in terms of no compensation because they gave the Nets permission to look into Ime Adoka and give him permission to go after Ime Adoka as their next head coach. All right, on a basketball-related note, I do think there's now some pressure on Joe Mazzulla because the players, remember, as we alluded to, they don't have many details because of the legal reasons. But now another team hired the guy knowing that that other team doesn't deem that the situation that happened with the Celtics, they don't deem that that was severe enough or bad enough for this guy to be suspended for the entirety of the season. They looked into the situation and said, no, he's good to be our head coach right now. So you do wonder if there's some sort of questioning from a Celtics perspective, like, wait, we don't know anything. And this other team said that he can coach right now. So how bad was it? You do wonder if there's some sort of questioning with that. So And it's not going to be an issue if Missoula coaches well and this team is the juggernaut that we all thought it was going to be and the Nets continue to play at the level they're playing at right now. But like Missoula the other day against Chicago, should have called a couple of timeouts there when the Bulls were going on their run. He didn't do that. And the Celtics defense this season hasn't been particularly great without Robert Williams. If they continue to play like the 22nd defense of the NBA like they're playing right now, well, then I think those questions start to come up, right? At least it gets in the back of the players' heads, right? And like I said, this from a player's perspective, it's very difficult. And I totally respect it from the Celtics organization's perspective as well, because they were keeping stuff in-house for legal reasons. So they didn't tell the players. The players don't know what was going on. But just from a human element, if Missoula struggles, you do wonder if some of the Celtics players start to think a little bit along those lines, like, okay, what really happened with the Ime Adoka situation? But just to put a bow on this thing, I just can't believe the Nets are doing this. I really can't. After this just happened, the fact that the Nets are doing this right now, the timing of this just seems like such a dumpster fire for them. And my prediction for them is they're going to continue to suck. As great of a coach as Ime is, he's not fixing the situation with Kyrie Irving. He's not going to get Ben Simmons to shoot. The team is a complete joke right now. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with employee number eight, Antoine Walker. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 
37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, three-time All-Star, employee number eight, Antoine Walker. Antoine, how are you, man? Good, good. Thanks for having me on the show. Anytime, man. So I want to get into this Celtics team in a little bit, but I want to go back to when, of course, you were a member of this organization. So going back to that Eastern Conference Finals, 74-53, the comeback against the Nets, you and Paul Pierce each had, what was it, you combined to go like 11 straight points together. But obviously the famous moment in that game is you're yelling at Paul. So what's going through your mind there? What are you saying to Pierce? <laughs> um, you know, it was weird that at that time we was, uh, it was a 1-1 series. And I thought we was going to lose the game, but I just felt like we didn't compete. I felt like um, Paul was not being aggressive at all. Um, and I thought we needed to make a statement to let them know that we were going to be actually here to compete and fight. So that was really my whole message really to him was that, hey, look, we may not win this game, but, you know, you, we got to show some face here right quick. Let's try to show some face on our home floor. Um, and next thing you know, that momentum, Paul got going and, the momentum started to swing our way and, you know, then we was able to make history. But it really was just more so just trying to save face, not get blown out the building, try to make the game a little bit more respectable. And next thing you know, um, the tables turned and we was able to pull it out. What was that relationship like between you and Paul? Because obviously now we see Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and they're doing their mm -hmm. thing this year after going to the finals a season ago. What was that relationship like between you two? Uh, me and Paul had a great relationship. We had so much respect for each other, uh, some basketball ability. And, and one thing that made me and Paul work is we both wanted to win. We both were very competitive. We both are very competitive guys. And we never got in each other's way of any, any individual success. But just as a team, we had the same goals. And I think that's what really worked and really rooted for each other to, to be successful. Um, and that's why we was able to work for the time that we did in Boston because of our relationship I think off the court was more important than on the court. You know, we spent a lot of time together, hanging together, and I think that's what made it easier for us going to court and, and really kind of figure things out. I could yell at him. He could yell at me. I can get on him at times, and, you know, when I felt like he wasn't playing up to par. And, you know, that comes from hanging out and spending a lot of time together. What about like sort of like not that you guys played the same exact position, but similar positions, mm -hmm. right? Like you're on the wing a lot, just like Tatum and Brown mm -hmm. are. So how impactful can that be at practice? Like, is there a competitive edge where you guys are going at each other a lot rather than like a small to a big man relationship sort of thing? Well, it depends. I mean, if, if you guys want to challenge each other, um, it's a one on one. And, and, and I think it all depends on the coaches, how a competitive coach wants to make practice and make guys go at it. I think we look at Jalen and, 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 and um, Tatum, those guys play similar positions. They got kind of similar skill set. So you would want to match those guys up as much as possible, probably during training camp. Once you get into the season, you're looking for continuity and, and staying together. But 
But during training camp, I would, I would max those guys up against each other all the time. Hey, so what was the origin behind the quote that you had when you were asked about, hey, how come you take so many threes? And you said, because there's no <laughs> fours. How did that happen? <laughs> well, actually, it was All-Star Weekend. And um, to be frankly honest, I was hungover. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually headed to, I was at a press conference. And um, I think at this time, like right around the time, I had maybe had the most attempts for like a player by All-Star break. So it was like a big number. So the question was like, why I shoot so many threes? And I just, it just came out naturally because there's no fours. Um, <laughs> and it, it really was because I was hungover. I was tired um, at the press conference, just had a good, good night out, all-star weekend. So it was just one of those iconic moments. So you could understand what Jimmy Butler was going through a couple of years ago where he decided not to play in the all-star game because he was hungover. Oh yeah. No question. You get the right city. You, you, you get in some trouble. If you get if you have all star in, in, in one of those uh, cities, but I, I I do understand that. I mean, especially for a lot of guys that don't you, you ain't been to a lot of all star games and you've never had opportunity to participate in. And if it's your first time, I mean, you got room to make mistakes. So was that was that the ninety eight one at MSG? Uh, yep, I think it was ninety eight. Oh, that's that a crazy my first one. In Ma- yeah, Master Square Garden. That was like the whole big. You know, we thought Michael was um retiring and it was that whole hoopla behind it me and Kobe were the two young guys at that 96 class to, to make it to the all-star game yeah that was crazy that was like a young Tim Duncan Shaq was in that game that was a crazy all-star game and it being at Madison Square Garden that must have been like an incredible experience for that to be your first one. Oh, it was unbelievable man one obviously the, the, the hoopla around Michael Jordan but uh, Reggie Miller Grant Hill Tim Hardaway I mean Larry Bird was my coach I was the I was the young you know I was the young guy on the team so it was especially being around all those Hall of Famers and and for and then the top it all off is Madison Square Garden, um, the mecca for basketball. So just an unbelievable experience for me. Yeah, the, the one thing going back to what you said about the threes, it's interesting to me. And you said I know in one you led the league in attempts, but it's like, do you ever wonder like, hey, what happens if I get into the league may, maybe fifteen years later? Because now like. You taking all those threes, it would have been embraced. And at times it felt like people criticize you for that. But it's almost like you taking those threes was kind of like ahead of where that position was almost. Oh, without question. I always think about that. I mean, I, I wish I was playing this time. I, I mean, I remember um, so much grief and people giving me such a hard time because I did shoot so many threes because I was a, the prototypical power forward um, that people were used to seeing. So to see a guy stepping out shooting threes, where you no know, wasn't wasn't common back then, so I used to get you know people give me a hard time, but I love to see it now. I mean, so many versatile guys. I mean, we got centers now shooting threes. I just think it adds so much more to the game. Um, but I wish I played in this era. I'm probably missing out on a couple hundred million dollars right now. You know, if I was able to play in this era right now, so that's always something to think about. But it's interesting to see the game get to to evolve to where it's at now. Uh, you never thought that would come about, and to see where it's at now, I feel like I played a you know, selfishly, I feel like I played a little part in that and changing the game a little bit. Yeah, I'm with you, man, because I go back like to the late 90s and into the early 2000s. And I feel mm-hmm. like when we watch the game now, it's much more aesthetically pleasing. It's more enjoyable, right? Because there's so much more spacing on the court. Do you enjoy watching the game more now than the era that you played in? Um, I like the the rules. I mean, I wish we could have played. I mean, I wish I could play most of my career with those rules, like the, the free flowing, the being able offensively to, to have spacing and to be able to score. 
Um, it was much more difficult to score back in the 90s and early 2000s because of the hand checking and those things. Um, I like the game, but it's, it's really simple now. It's a pick and roll game. It's a point guard league. You got to have a guy who, who, who can distribute the basketball. Obviously, the bigs are picking and popping. So it's not the traditional throw in the post and seeing guys post up as much as we saw back in the past. So that's a little different. But besides that, I mean, I, I do enjoy watching the game. There's some players in the league that I really enjoy watching on a night-in, night-out basis. Who's, like, your favorite player to watch right now? Giannis. I love watching Giannis play. The, the Greek freak is, is one of my favorite. Um, but also, like, I still like to watch LeBron play. I still like uh, Kevin Durant. Um, I love those 6'8", 6'9", versatile guys. You know, up-and-coming stars like John Moran, and those guys are exciting to watch, too, as well. Yeah, well, speaking of Kevin Durant, his coach just got axed. Steve Nash got fired. And remember, like, mm-hmm. there was all this stuff in the offseason that Kevin Durant wanted him out. Apparently, they solved that for, like, seven games into the season. And now Nash is out. They have the situation going on with Kyrie Irving. It just feels like it's a mess right there in Brooklyn, Antoine, right now. Yeah, it's kind of what you just talked about, man. I think the, the, the change style of play. If you look at Steve Nash's career, he played that. They were one of the first teams to kind of adapt that style, shoot the three, play small ball. Um, and I think he never took that mentality out of it out into, in the, as a pro. Um, and you saw us with his teams. He's basically X the centers out on, on his teams, not really having a center. Um, this year, they can use a center. I mean, you got Dwight Howard and Hassan Whiteside sitting at home. And, and if you watch them the first seven games, they like inside presence. Not saying those guys are going to come in and be world beaters, but you need some size in there. Um, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, two offensive-minded guys. So I just think his style was not conducive for what what you got, the roster that you got in place. I think, you know, with those guys, you can go back to more of a traditional big man, sit in the middle and and do some other things. So I think that's where it is, the communication in the locker room. I think Steve being an ex-player, MVP, probably was too friendly. Um, You know, and I wasn't in the locker room, so but I'm just assuming I played with Steve. Usually player coaches like that that are young and still around, you know, not far removed from the game are sometimes a little too friendly with guys. And, you know, sometimes that can that can create bad habits. And um, obviously they haven't, you know, with that personnel change, they haven't um, exceeded expectations at all. Yeah. And do you think now, like looking at this, because we remember Kyrie Irving from his days with the Celtics, there was a lot of drama here. And now with this latest thing, he didn't get a contract extension in the offseason as well. Do you think it's mm-hmm. salvageable there with Kyrie in Brooklyn? Or do you think they got to move on from him? Um, that's a tough one, man. Um, obviously, his skill set, we all know how great of a player he is. But Kyrie comes with a lot of things off the court that can be sometimes a little judgmental and um, makes you think about his lack of focus towards the game. Um but he's, he's, he's a one-in-a-lifetime talent, so it's, it's hard to just get off of him. But, you know, sometimes we've seen some other guys in this league and in sports in general just sometimes not able to separate the two, come to work and be professional and let other things distract them. And I think, you know, with Kyrie, I think it's just got to be locked in. He has to show the basketball community, the basketball world, that he can play, play an 82-game season. He can lock in. He can focus. Um get back to making that the number one priority. And if he does that, he could be in the league, it could be in the league a, a long time. But if he does not, I mean, you're starting to tinker with, you know, teams being scared to bring you in. 
Well, I'll tell you this, Antoine, it was sweet to see the Celtics beat him in the postseason last year after his <laughs> exit, telling the season ticket holders he was going to stay here. That was pretty sweet. So going back to the your era for a second here with Paul mm-hmm. Pearson, you guys bring in your college coach, Rick Pitino, and I still contend mm-hmm. if he never leaves Kentucky, Pitino has more national championships than Coach K. I'll still, I'll die on that hill. But anyway, mm-hmm. when did you know, because obviously you had a great relationship with him, I assume, at the collegiate level, you won a national championship. When did you know that it wouldn't work for him at the NBA level? Um, I think the problem for coaching uh, uh, was that he had both jobs. He was the head coach and GM. Right. Um, the impatient part, uh, he was just impatient. You know, and if you follow the game of NBA, you have to let talent develop. You got to, you know, we drafted Chauncey Billups around Mercer at the third and sixth pick. We're trading Chauncey Billups halfway through the season. Um, you know, uh, you, don't tra- you don't trade a rookie, you know, 40, 50 games into a season. You got to give this guy a chance to see how things are going to work. And we actually were very um, we were very competitive that year. We won 38 games after winning only 15. I just think the impatient part was really kind of grew on coach. If you really look at how many guys I played with, me and Paul played with, in that short <laughs> period, man, with trades and different guys coming in. Um, he just was impatient. But great coach, great basketball mind. And just, you know, those dual – having those dual jobs because you got to – you're the GM now and you coach them. So, you know, sometimes it's always good to have separation where, you know, the coach can, you know, work with the player to, you know, kind of get the message across. But the message was coming from one person. He, he controlled both hats. Yeah, I remember he wanted to press to him. Like, I don't know how well this is going to go over. But the Chauncey Billup <laughs> thing is a great point, man, because you guys, I were, I believe you beat the Bulls that season, didn't you? When the Bulls, like, broke the record. I'm pretty sure you beat yeah. the Bulls that year. We beat, we, we beat the Bulls open at night. Yeah, I remember that. And so what was the reaction like in the locker room? Were you like, we just took this guy in the top five of the draft and now we're trading. Were you guys like, what the hell's going on in here? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, Chauncey was my neighbor. He approached me. I was thought. We'll be playing together for a long time. I was shocked. Um, but Coach was in love with Kenny Anderson, the New York guard, a guard he really liked and he liked, loved, obviously, through high school. And the opportunity presented itself to, to trade for him. But that's the type of things, you know, Coach is dealing with trades during the middle of the season, being, in, you know, being the, the GM and had to deal with that type of situation. Usually, you know, those jobs are separate. You don't have to worry about that. And so that, that was one of the major things that I thought, stop Rick Pitino from being very successful at the, at the pro level. He's had success there, but I think with the Celtics, because he had to do both jobs. All right, so I'm looking back at the three best drafts that everybody argues in NBA history. You got mm-hmm. 84, which is Jordan. He was pretty good. Uh, Barkley, Hakeem, Stockton. 96, Iverson, yourself, Ray Allen, Kobe, Jermaine O'Neal. 03, you got LeBron, Carmelo, Wade, and Bosch. So what's the case for you that 96 is better than 84 and 03? I think top to bottom. I think you look at all, uh, was 58, 59 picks. I think you just look at some second round guys that were impactful in the league and play intricate roles on teams. Um, I think that's where from top to bottom we were, we were much better. And then even, even if you look at our lottery, you know, you got Kobe at the back end of that lottery. You got Steve Nash, who you did. You know, a two-time MVP who was in our draft, too, as well. Um, you know, I think about Sharif. I do Raheem, Raheem had a good career. Marcus Camby was was good. Um, you know, Kerry Kittles, Ray, Stephon Marbury, myself. I mean, you have talking about guys that play intricate roles on teams and was huge. Pages Stoakovich, 
I mean, we got so many guys, I think, from top to bottom. And I'm not being biased. I just think it's the best draft class. I think you some of those other classes are top-heavy. And the names may jump out at you a little bit stronger. And those guys may be, you know, Hall of Famers. But we got a little bit of everything in our class. Yeah, I'm with you. It's the depth is overwhelming in your class compared to the other mm-hmm. ones. And yeah, even a guy like Camby, who, of course, we remember here playing at UMass. You guys played him in the Final Four back at the college level. Oh, the yeah. guy, he was a defensive player of the year in the NBA, right? And it's somebody that no, yes. nobody talks about. And he's probably like, what, the seventh or eighth best player from that draft, which is pretty incredible to think about. So I was looking at this, Antoine, the other night, Marcus Smart, who, of course, won the defensive player of the year last year. Mm-hmm. He just passed you on the all-time steals list with the Celtics to go from sixth to fifth. Did you realize that Smart was coming up uh, to get you on that list? <laughs> no, I, I, I know I, I got I got a solid seven and a half, eight years at Celtics, so I got some records. But they started, y'all get, get taken out now. These young guys are so good and the Celtics have done such a terrific job of drafting. When you look at Jalen and, and Jason and obviously Marcus and those guys being the foundation and now getting five and six years with one team, um, they're doing a terrific job of chasing all the all the all the records are gonna be in trouble in a minute. Yeah, you're not kidding about that. All the three-point records, all that different type of stuff. So, hey, from your days with the Seas, what did you remember the most about playing with uh, having Tommy Heinsohn calling the games? <laughs> um, Tommy was great. I think for me personally, um, and a lot of people don't know this, people just know from him calling the games, but Tommy was one of those guys who spent a lot of time with the guys off the court, um, you know, because obviously they flew with us and, and on trips, and he'll come on a plane and talk to you about your game before the game, things that he may see. And those moments are invaluable when you get that type of information and um, support from a guy like Tommy Heisen. But just great. Um, you know you know he was a homer. You know he was a substance of nothing. <laughs> you loved that about him. You knew we couldn't do nothing wrong in his eyes. Um, so those are special. Uh, so many guys he gave nicknames to and made them famous in Boston. Um, just a, you know, an unbelievable icon and one thing that's great about being a Celtic is because of those type of guys. Um, you know, and I was very fortunate to be around most of them and Red Allback and, you know, JoJo White and Bill Russell. Even got a chance to be around Bird my first year. But, you know, my first year, ML Carr was the head coach. Dennis Johnson was the assistant. Casey Jones was the assistant. I mean, the, the organization, I mean, to be around those type of guys was invaluable in that organization. So, I always remember that and, and, and great to be a part of the Celtic organization. Yeah, I mean, he was the best, even if he was a homer. I mean, that's what we want is like, the, it's the whole right. broadcast, right? It's not like a national right. broadcast, so you can get away with being a homer. So obviously mm-hmm. we all loved Tommy calling games. So I'm looking at this team, Antoine, so far this year, mm-hmm. they're 22nd in defense. Now, obviously we know a large portion of that is because there's no Robert Williams. Any concern mm-hmm. with this team defensively until Rob comes back? Or do you think we'll see them get back to not what they were with Rob last year, but closer to that in the coming weeks? No, I'm not worried about it. One thing about the great thing about them, they didn't make a lot of moves. The acquisitions that they brought in were perfect. They fit in. They didn't throw them off rhythm, didn't take them off rotation. Obviously, they will be better defensively once Robert Williams comes back. Um, the one thing I want to see this team do is not get bored because they are very good. When you're, when you're at plant the level that they are, they should be hungry right now. Being the way, you know, losing their six in the finals and, you know, in my personal opinion that they gave they gave that finals away. I thought they, they could have won that series easily. But when you turn the basketball over 40 plus times in two games against a Golden State team that's, that's as good as they are, you're not going to win too much. But 
I think they should be hungry. Um, you know, some teams come back after going to the finals. You may want to win 60 games. You set your goals different. Um, I think they just need to set their goals so totally different to, hey, do we want to be a one seed? Do we think we need to be a two seed? All these type of things you should be thinking about because they're a team that should believe, and I believe that they can get back to the finals. Um, they're that good because they do have the continuity and the roster to do it. Barring the injuries, the Celtics will be right there at the end, but I don't want them to get bored because they think they can turn it on at any moment. I want them to have that same hunger they had the second half of the season last year and, and keep that hunger going as, as the season goes along. Yeah, I'm with you because we've seen it a couple of times this year. Like they were blowing out the Bulls in the first quarter. They let them back in that game that they ultimately mm -hmm. lost. Now, they beat the Wizards the other night, but they did the same thing. They got out to a huge lead of the first quarter and they kind of sat back and the Wizards got back in the game. So that has been a little bit frustrating. But with Tatum in particular, obviously he had a poor finals, especially for his standards, a first team all NBA guy a season ago, but it does seem like him in particular, he's been shot out of a cannon, Antoine. He's had an outstanding mm -hmm. start to the season and getting to the rim more, doing a lot of different things. So what do you think his ceiling is as a player? Like, can he be an MVP in this league? Yeah, I, I did my little predictions early in the season. And I had him as my MVP. I just think he he loves the game. I think he's a competitor. Um, I think the way he ended the season last year, he knows he was disappointing. He, he went he gave, didn't. Um, play as well as he needed to play in the finals. And you see that early on. He's came out in the Avengers. He's playing really good basketball. He's very aggressive. You see some of the additions to his game. Um, and that's what I want to see. That's what I expect. Um, and I just love the fact that him and Jalen have figured out how to play together. And I think that's the one special thing about this this whole thing. And that's why I believe he can win the MVP is because those guys are figured out and they're not going to get in each other's way at all. Yeah, and I like, too, it's it's almost like they took it personal, like the criticism that they couldn't play together when you saw them after they beat the Heat saying, break us up, break us up, like just basically mm -hmm. sh sh like making fun of everybody that had that mm -hmm. take. So I, I do like that. Hey, before we let you go, Antoine, just interested on what you've made of Joe Mazzulla so far, 34-year-old guy who obviously is put into a difficult situation, right? He's not coaching a lottery team. He's coaching a team that just made it to the finals. What have you made of Mazzulla so far this year? I think he's been good. I think one thing he has to do is as the season goes along, we have to give him time and people have to give him time to be able to implement um, some things that he may want to do. Um, obviously, the team was kind of already intact. You know, it, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you remember, remember when Luke Walton took over for Steve Kerr? Yeah. And, you know what I mean, the team was already good and, you know what I mean, they were going to win a bunch of games. It's what else can he do, the nuances that he can have, um, the player relationships that he had to keep them motivated, um, picking his spots when he needs to get on them to, to, to keep this thing pushing and going forward. So those are some of the things I'm going to look at um, to see if he does that really well. That's usually sometimes, a, especially when you get a talented group that's going to win games regardless, um, you got to figure out little things, making sure the rotation stays down, plugging guys in and out the lineup when guys that got it going well and they're playing well. So, those are the things that, but so far, so good. And I think I, I saw his comments early about how they had to get back to learning how to win. And that's what we talked about earlier, blowing big leads and playing for 48 minutes. So those are some of the things you want to see him continue to grow and, and do as a coach. But so far, so good. All right, that is Antoine Walker, employee number eight, of course. Great member of the Celtics organization. Oh, Antoine, you get royalties from Steph Curry for the shimmy, man. I feel like he should be paying you for that. <laughs> man, it's about it's a couple of them should be paying me for it. Nah, 
he ain't giving me no royalties. At least, at least show me some love. I think they should at least show me a little love, though, right? I'm not, you're not kidding, man. They, they should be paying you for that. That is Antoine Walker. <laughs> Antoine, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Great stuff. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. All right, great stuff there from employee eight, Antoine Walker. Love chatting with Antoine, one of my favorite players from growing up as a Celtics fan. And those teams are really important for the region because the Celtics were so bad in the 90s after dealing with, obviously, tragedies, the Len Bias situation, and... Reggie Lewis as well, those Celtics teams at least brought back some hope. They were never a legitimate championship level team, but they were a very entertaining team that went to the conference finals. But I did want to get to the Patriots because, of course, we had the trade deadline pass and the Patriots stay pat. They don't do anything. So you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Did you have any pieces to sell off? Well, the first one I would point to is Nelson Aguilar. And the answer to that is no. Why? Because his contract is relatively big, even though it's an expiring contract, if you will, to use the NBA verbiage. But the problem is that Aguilar on Sunday played just 19 snaps. That was 24%. Jacoby Myers, of course, played the most snaps at the receiver position. He was followed by Tyquan Thornton, the rookie, who was second at 78% of the snaps. Kendrick Bourne was third at 69% of the snaps. And we know that Devontae Parker got hurt early on in that game, and he never returned. So that means if you look at the pecking order and the hierarchy of Patriots receivers, you have Myers, you have Parker, you have Thornton, and you have Bourne, all right now ahead of Nelson Aguilar. So how could the Patriots get anything for this guy, right? Now, if he continued to play the way he did at the beginning of the season, you may have been able to get somebody to bite on it. But because he had such a dramatic fall and he was dealing with an injury— I just can't imagine there were buyers there. And with Bourne, yeah, that's an intriguing contract, $4.7 million in terms of the cap it. But the Patriots probably look at Bourne now and think we need him. And I, I would like them to throw the ball more to Bourne to begin with. And it's a very good contract. So I can't really criticize the Patriots for holding on to Kendrick Bourne because I personally like him as a player and I think he can help the team. The only guy I could have seen moving was Aguilar from the receiver position, but you aren't going to get anything for the guy. The other guy that possibly you could have moved on from is Damian Harris because he's in the final year of his contract, but I don't think that goes over well in the locker room. I think you can do that prior to a season, but I don't think you can do that now, right? Because Ramondre Stevenson has clearly taken over as the number one back in this offense. I mean, there's no way around it. We saw it the other day when they were both healthy, Ramondre Stevenson playing way more than Damian Harris. But the problem is that what if Ramondre goes down? Well, then Damian Harris is there. Now, like I said, Last week, I think you could have started a bidding war from him 
for him because the Rams are desperate for a running back. The Buccaneers are desperate for a running back. But I do understand where the Patriots are coming from, not moving on from the player because of how that would have affected the chemistry of the locker room. Maybe I'm just more pragmatic. I would have said, hey, I'm moving on from Damian Harris because I'm not signing him after the season. I do understand where the Patriots are coming from, although you drafted two running backs. I would have gone the other way and traded him. I understand the logic behind it, but I would have moved on from him. Now, the one thing that you look at, too, is you weren't going to trade a second and a fifth for Roquan Smith, although you could have used a linebacker. I just don't see the Patriots paying that type of premium for Roquan Smith. And the other thing is that really sucks is now Bradley Chubb. Bradley Chubb is on the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins are just all in. They're all in on all these guys. And now they needed another pass rusher. We know the Dolphins like to blitz a ton. Now they get a guy that you don't need to blitz with, and he's going to help out that defense significantly. So this is not a guy that I'm looking forward to seeing the Patriots play against in the second half of the season. All right, we got time for a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian, I enjoy the show. This is John calling from Atlanta. Uh, My question is this. Uh, If Josh McDaniels gets fired from uh, the Raiders, do you think that he would come back this season to coach the Patriots? Is there any scenario where that happens? Seems to me like we could really use him. It would be a great idea if it could work out. Um, Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. It's an interesting thought because Josh McDaniels apparently had another meeting (laughs) with Mark Davis, the Raiders owner. This is the second meeting he's had this season. And the Raiders, that's one of the worst performances of the week. They just got absolutely obliterated by the New Orleans Saints. That Raiders team paid Darren Waller. They have Hunter Renfro. They traded for Devontae Adams. They have Josh Jacobs in the backfield. And in all likelihood, their chances of making the playoffs are very, very small right now. And I've said on multiple occasions, I've never got it with McDaniels in terms of teams wanting him to be the head coach. He was a failure in Denver. And really, every year that he doesn't have Tom Brady, he doesn't really have an efficient offense. I mean, it was okay last year with Mac Jones as a rookie. But to your question about McDaniels coming back to the Patriots, I'm pretty sure that will happen if he gets fired. They all come back. McDaniels already come back once. Patricia's come back. Joe Judge has come back, so I'm pretty sure lock it in. He's in the Bill circle of trust, if you will. I mean, Bill doesn't never wants to bring in an outsider, right? Don't bring in an outsider to the organization. But Josh, oh yeah, go ahead. Come on back, Josh. You failed again. Let's go. Help us out here. Yeah, I'm sure it will happen if he gets fired. Hey, Brian. Zach from Rochester again. It's disgusting how spoiled this fan base is with their QBs. Mac was in the Rookie of the Year conversation last year, and he has a bad start to this season, including getting injured, and you're already trying to kick him out the door. I agree Mac has to be better, but his decision has been poor, and he, he definitely hasn't looked great recently, but I think we're overreacting to the fact that he's not Tom Brady. He has had a better start to his career at EPA per play than not only every other QB in his class, but also Kyler Murray, Tua, and wait for it, Josh Allen. I get it when you say he might not be the QB of the next decade for the Pats because he definitely still has a lot to prove. But you better hope he's the quarterback of the next two seasons because where is that new Hall of Fame QB going to come from if it's not him? Let's skip these zappy Brady delusions. He's had five quarters, and we saw who he was in the Chicago game. That magic is over. Give the Mac the time he has earned, and it's his job for the foreseeable future. All right, look, it's a fair point in some sense. Now, the Zappy thing, I don't think that anybody thought that Zappy was going to turn into Tom Brady. I think that's unfair. I think people were just 
happy that, hey, they found a quarterback in the fourth round that actually won two games for you. Not to say that it was all on him, but you won two games with a quarterback that expectations are not very high for a fourth round quarterback. And the fact that Zappi was able to play at a competent level is a large reason that the Patriots are still in a position where they're four and four and they have the opportunity to go to the postseason. And I'm not saying just the second half that Zappi played against the Bears is who he is. So we just take away the two good games that he played against the Detroit Lions and the Cleveland Browns. And I get those aren't great teams, although Cleveland beat the shit out of Cincinnati. So I get that's Part of it is the game plan was set up perfectly for him, but he's got to go out there and execute it, and he certainly did. My whole thing with Mac Jones is this. If he plays poorly again against an Indianapolis Colts team that, quite frankly, is not very good, I do believe that the Patriots are going to have to consider making a change because what we have seen from Mac Jones last year, or this year compared to last year is he's regressed. And look, I outlined some of the issues in terms of the coaching staff, et cetera, for why some of that is happening. But there has to be some responsibility for the quarterback. And the reality is this. The offense has looked like it's functioned at a higher level when Zappi's on the field. Now, look, we may find out after Zappi plays for three games, well, he sucks. He's not good. We could certainly find that out. But if Mac Jones can't make progress this week, right, because there's no way anybody felt good about Mac coming out of the Jets games, right? There's no way. You can't tell me that you felt good about Mac coming out of the Jets games. If you do, you're just drinking the Kool-Aid. You believe way too much in the player if that's what you actually thought. So if he plays poorly against Indy and then you have the bye week coming up, I do believe there is going to be a conversation internally on whether or not Mac should be the quarterback for the remainder of the season because... The reality is this, even if you say Zappi's job was easier this year, Zappi has been better than Mac when he's been on the field. You cannot argue to the contrary. All right, great voicemails as always. And remember, if you do want to leave one, 617-396-7172 is the number. Again, that is 617-396-7172. So I know on Sunday after the game, I did a lot of shitting on Mac because, and I stand by the fact that he played poorly in that game. But I am wondering this, if we just look at where the Patriots are at organizationally right now, did they miss out on an opportunity in the offseason to upgrade this team? Because when you look at it, and I take the two quarterbacks that played at the same college as Mac Jones, Tua and Jalen Hurts, their two organizations said, hey, our guys are not perfect quarterbacks. They're not in the top three to five quarterbacks in the NFL. Their resumes aren't there yet. So what do we need to do to help them get into the level where we could argue, oh, are they playing at an elite level? And right now, even if you don't think that Tua is going to be a great quarterback for 10 years, even if you don't think that Jalen Hurts is going to be a great quarterback for 10 years, they're playing really fucking good right now. And the Patriots quarterback, Mac Jones, is playing really poorly right now. And those organizations help those teams out. I mean, I remember doing a podcast before the season where I said I was going to die on the hill that Mac Jones is better than Tua. Well, I'm perishing on that hill right now because Tua has played significantly better than has Mac Jones. So look at what these teams did. They realized these quarterbacks need help. We need to supercharge our offense. So what did they do? Well, the Eagles gave up a first and a third for A.J. Brown. And if you look at what the Dolphins gave up, a first, a second, two fourths, and a six-round pick for Tyreek Hill. So they said, we're going all in. We're giving these guys everything they possibly can. And if they can't succeed with these guys, well, then we're moving on from the players, right? Because Tua was entering that type of season, as was Jalen Hurts. And look at the numbers. Tua's gone from 204 yards per game up to 297. His passer rating's gone from 90.1 to 112.7, which, by the way, is the best in the NFL. His yards per attempt have gone from 
a terrible 6.8 to 9.0. Jalen Hurts, 209 yards per game up to 257. 87.2 rating to 105.1, 7.3 yards per attempt up to 8.5. Okay, so those guys with those receivers have been significantly better this year than they were a season ago. How about Mac? 223 yards per game, down to 198. 92.5 passer rating, down to 73.1. 7.3 yards per attempt, down to 7.2. Now that's a very small difference, but think about it. It's because the completion percentage has slipped from 67.6 to 65.9%. So he's throwing the ball down the field more as Mac Jones, but it's not working in any sort of efficient manner whatsoever. So those two quarterbacks, their team said, hey, let's help them out and look at where they're at right now, right? And those teams realized, hey, we need a cheat code in the offense because the quarterback's not ready to just put everybody on their back right now. We need a situation where we need something that nobody can defend whatsoever. So they go after two of the best receivers in the NFL. So if you just look at what Jalen Hurts does well, he likes to throw the ball in the middle of the field. Now, a lot of quarterbacks do, but look at Hurts' numbers. Between zero and 10 yards in between the numbers, 34 of 45, 402 yards, a 100.4 rating. Between the numbers from 10 to 20 yards, 278 yards, a 132.9 rating. That's where he operates his best as a passer. Well, that's where A.J. Brown is at his best as a receiver because he almost has like a massive tight end frame. He is a massive individual. So look at A.J. Brown, 10 to 20 yards between the numbers, 162 yards, 23.1 yards per reception, 0 to 10 yards between the numbers, 12 grabs, and 13.1 yards per reception. So he's operating in the space where Jalen Hurts is best as a passer. They basically found the perfect fit for Jalen Hurts, and not to mention he's a young player as well. And this is an Eagles team, remember, that had just spent a first-round pick on a good player from Alabama, by the way, in Devontae Smith, but they said, hey, we need more. Devontae Smith probably best suited to be a high-level number two. We need the number one. They went out and they got it. All right, how about Tua? Well, last year, one of the things about Tua is he got rid of the ball really quickly, 2.52 seconds. And the other thing about Tua is he didn't throw the ball down the field much. Seven air yards per attempt. That was the third lowest in the NFL. Now, part of that was due to his offensive line. But you've watched Tua play. You know how he likes to operate, right? He likes to get the ball out quickly. So the Dolphins, who like the Eagles, drafted a really good Alabama receiver in Jalen Waddell, said, you know what? Screw it. Screw it. We need more. Tyreek Hill is the shiftiest player in the NFL. And that's the perfect type of receiver for a quarterback in Tua that likes to get rid of the ball quickly. And look at what that's done for Tua, right? Where Tua has taken his game to a completely different level, and you can't ignore the fact that he's got one of the best receivers in the NFL that fits perfectly with his skill set. Now, I'm not excusing Mac's performance all in all because it's been bad. But why not be more aggressive at the receiver position in the offseason? It feels like, to me, that was the missed opportunity for the Patriots, right? The big move the Patriots made was Devontae Parker in the offseason who is at 1.5 yards per separation per target. And I get it. He had to sit out the majority of last game because of the knee issue. That's last in the NFL. You know where he ranked two seasons ago, or I should say in 2021, in yards of separation per target? 1.7. You know where that was? Last in the NFL. His catch rate's at 53.57%. So you're not getting anything efficient out of the player, right? Just over half the time he's targeted, he catches the ball, and he doesn't get any separation whatsoever. So you're hoping that eventually Thornton could be that guy down the road, be your number one receiver, 
and he played the third most receiving snaps on Sunday. And my issue after the game, and it still is, they didn't involve him enough. You get that guy out there with all that speed. Why isn't he getting the ball more? That to me made no sense whatsoever in terms of just an individual game plan thing. And I look at the Patriots. Part of the calculus was let's take more shots this season. That's what they drew up in the offseason. We need to take more shots down the field. Let's try to be more explosive. And it just isn't helping the quarterback, quite frankly. The only success that Mac had the other day was in the quick game, getting rid of the ball quickly. Less than two and a half seconds in that game the other day. He's 16 of 19. That's 84.2%. One touchdown, no interceptions, no sacks, and a 102.6 rating. So they did find some success in terms of Mac getting the ball out quickly, but they didn't really dig into it nearly enough. If you just look at it, Mac last week, they actually went away from the deep passing game a bit in that game. Now, part of it obviously was on the protection as well, but 4.3 intended air yards per attempt last week for Mac, lowest in the NFL in week eight. And you look at his time to throw, he was the fifth quickest at 2.52. And I get it. Part of that is game plan because the Patriots couldn't block anybody. But that's where Mac is going to be successful when he gets rid of the ball quickly. So I'm hoping they get back to that a little bit because on the season, his intended air yards per attempts at 8.6, that's the 10th highest in the NFL. And what we found out, that doesn't work for Mac Jones because what we know is Mac is not playing well this season and he's playing differently than he did a season ago. 5.1% of Mac Jones's passes this year are going for interceptions. That's 35th of 35 qualifiers. In other words, it's the worst in the entire NFL. His 73.1 passer rating ranks 32nd. Here's the guys that are worse than him. Baker Mayfield, Zach Wilson, and Kenny Pickett. And how about the team results, right? The quarterback's not playing well. Look at the team results on offense. They're turning the ball over on 18% of their drives. 30th in the NFL. That number last year was at 12.6. Not great, but it was 20th. It's a lot better than 18% of your drives are resulting in turnovers. And then you look at the other component here. Well, if you're taking all these shots, if you're trying to be more of a big play offense, you must be scoring more, right? Well, no. The Patriots are scoring on 36% of their drives, 18th of the NFL. Last year, you know where they were at? Second. They were at 48%. They scored on 48% of their drives a year ago. So my hope is they get back to, hey, let's do what worked last year a little bit. Let's get rid of the ball quickly. That's the first thing they clearly need to do. He can't just be this guy, Mac Jones, that hangs in the pocket and tries to throw the ball down the field because what we have is the evidence of this year. It hasn't worked so far this season. So it doesn't really behoove the Patriots to try to have Mac be this guy that is a risk taker, that's throwing the football down the field all the time. It just hasn't really worked out for Mac Jones. And quite frankly, I don't believe it works out for his skill set as a player whatsoever. So I do really look at the Patriots missing out on a huge opportunity in the offseason where I get it financially, salary cap, all that different type of stuff. You would have to move things around to get one of these deals done. But we've seen teams in the NFL do it all the time where they can make room for a guy based on salary cap situations. And I just wonder, you look at these quarterbacks across the league like Tua and like Jalen Hurts, who are now playing at elite levels, why are they playing at that level? Yes, certainly some of it is coaching and all that, but a large portion of it is because they have two of the best receivers in the NFL on their team. Like, can you imagine this Patriots team where Jacoby Myers is your number two option? Because Jacoby Myers is having a ridiculous season. He is playing incredibly well this season. 
But we can all acknowledge he's not like a legitimate bona fide star level receiver. He's a very, very good player. This is not meant to sound like an indictment on Jacoby Myers whatsoever. He's a very good player. He's been by far the Patriots most consistent pass catching entity, if you will. If you count receivers and tight ends, he's really good. But imagine him as a number two, because I look at that team in Philadelphia and Devontae Smith looked at times like he was going to be a number one receiver coming out of the collegiate level. But the Eagles said, well, we can already get a guy in A.J. Brown that we know is a number one. And then can you imagine what Devontae Smith is doing as a number two receiver? And the Patriots, now Jacoby Myers is their number one. And there's just not that level of explosiveness with Jacoby Myers like you get with A.J. Brown and, of course, like you get with Tyreek Hill. But just imagine that. Then you have Ramondre Stevenson out of the backfield as well, and A.J. Brown getting open in the middle of the field like he's doing for the Philadelphia Eagles right now. This is a totally different Patriots offense. It is supercharged with that guy. See, these receivers make up for some of the shortcomings of their quarterbacks. It's a weapons league right now, and the Patriots are lacking that alpha and omega, if you will, of their offense. Look at the past couple Super Bowl champs, Rams, Cooper Cup, Bucks. They had two of them, Mike Evans and Godwin. Heck, Rob Gronkowski was like their fourth best weapon. And this is what Tom Brady, that's how good the weapons were. Because he had Antonio Brown on that team as well. Now, obviously, we all know about Antonio Brown now. But think about that quartet of receivers. Evans, Godwin, Gronk at the tight end position, and Antonio Brown. The Chiefs, when they won their Super Bowl, they had Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey. And the Patriots are sitting here right now with a quarterback that is clearly struggling. And he doesn't have that definitive number one option. He doesn't have that game-changing type player. So this is not to defend Mac, right? Because some of the plays, there's zero excuses for some of the turnover-worthy plays, if you will, that Mac Jones is making this season. There's no way around it. He's regressed as a player. But I believe what happened with the Dolphins and the Eagles is they took a serious look at their quarterbacks. And they said, okay, what are their quarterback strengths? And what are some of their weaknesses? And how do we get a guy that fits in with that particular player? And they made the big move, right? They went big game hunting. They showed a belief in their quarterback. And with the Patriots, not to say that they didn't believe in Mac Jones, because in fact, I think they actually believed in Mac Jones a little too much, because I think what the Patriots did is they looked at what Mac Jones did in his rookie season and said, hey, we can get more out of the player, right? And to some extent, I can understand the logic in that, right? Because you say, okay, we see it all the time in the NFL. A guy takes a leap at his second year as a quarterback. So I can understand where they're coming from with that but they put too much on the quarterback's plate, right? It's almost like they were asking him to take this massive leap in year two that, well, they were missing one of the ingredients if you want that guy to take a massive leap. What happened when Joe Burrow took his leap in year two last year? He got this thoroughbred in Jamar Chase. Now, Jamar Chase, I get it, different type of situation, right? You got him in the draft, but the point being is he took that leap when he got that guy. We saw it with Josh Allen. Now, his leap was in year three, but it's when he got Stephon Diggs. And it just feels like, to me, the Patriots owed it to themselves to get the quarterback a legit, bona fide number one receiver to find out if he could be that guy. Because what we're finding out right now, put more on Max plate, have him throw the football down the field more, have him throw into tight windows, it's not going to work. We have enough evidence so far that that type of game plan isn't going to work. Now, at this point, it's not really salvageable this season. You're not going to get a number one receiver in the NFL. So what they have to do now Get back to the basics. Get back to what worked for Mac Jones last season. All right, we'll be back with you on Thursday as we get you set for the Patriots and the Colts coming up on Sunday. And as always, make sure to get your voicemails in that number 617-396-7172. Again, that is 617-396-7172. 
Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.